This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, welcome to episode 34 of the Bone Beat Podcast. This is on payment changes proposed for 2023. So if you're like most orthopedic surgeons, you have this vague kind of idea of how the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services actually figures out how doctors are paid. And for the vast majority of us, that's the extent that we get because all of a sudden it gets into these crazy acronyms and all these things that nobody seems to understand. Fortunately for us, we do have folks within the AAOS, both on the physician side and on the staff side, that are experts in this and know a tremendous about this. And I have the absolute pleasure today of talking with my friend, Dr. Carl Koenig, who is the chair of the AAOS Healthcare Systems Committee. If y'all don't know, Carl is an associate professor at the Department of Surgery and Perioperative Care and the executive director of the Musculoskeletal Institute and the chief of the Division of Orthopedics at University of Texas Health in Austin with our other friend, Dr. Kevin Bozick. So Carl is a expert in these areas and I'm really looking forward to talking with him about this and hopefully unraveling some of the mysteries of payment and payment changes that are proposed for 2023. So Dr. Coney, welcome, sir. Morning, Doug. Really looking forward to talking to you about this. As you mentioned, it can often be an enigma wrapped in a morass. And uh, luckily, we have excellent folks on our team, but we really try to analyze where we're at, where Medicare is trying to go, try to understand it, and then advocate on behalf of the fellowship as to for our patients as well as our surgeons. And that's good homework for everybody on the podcast. This week, you must use an enigma wrapped in a morass in some phrase or statement. Probably you'll be good, great at a party. We talk about payment changes every year. This is the, about the time of year the CMS kicks the can open and Shirasi Deb and the excellent folks over on the regulatory side of the Office of Government Relations deals with this. If y'all are looking for more issues about this, you can go back to episode 23, which was in October 2021, on the economic effects of Medicare pay cuts. And then even before that, in September 2020, we did a special episode on the impact of payment policy changes. So there's really three areas we want to dive into, and we're going to break this down for the average folks because we quickly can get lost in the acronyms. The first one is the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, also known as the MPFS. The next one is the Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System, which is the OPS, and then the Hospital Inpatient Prospective Payment System, IPPS. So y'all hang tight. I know a bunch of y'all right now are going... This is going to be really dry and boring. It's not. It's going to be good. We're going to take this carefully. We're going to talk about this in a level that folks can understand. Carl, those are the rules. What are your general thoughts about the differences between these, how y'all deal with these within the Healthcare Systems Committee? Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate it. Part of our job on the Healthcare Systems Committee is to both educate the fellowship on what's going on on the payment side and of the last 
decade or so of the value-based care world. And the other part is to really support the advocacy efforts of the Office of Government Relations of the AOS. So that's how we get tied up into these. And we don't have much control over the way Medicare and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation actually regulates itself or manages the payment structure, but we have to the opportunity to make comments on the changes that they propose each year. So the Medicare physician fee schedule is basically right how physicians get paid in the most basic terms. And there are incredibly complicated algorithms that go forward and trying to figure all of this out. And so our job is to really go down and break into the weeds. We believe that orthopedic services are often the most valuable in terms of quality of life or certainly rank up there. And so trying to maintain access for those is crucial to us. So why do I say all that is that we all work in this world where Medicare is not the most lucrative payer that an orthopedic surgeon ends up having in their practice. And there's always cost shifting that goes on in order to keep access available for many different patients. And so what we're trying to watch out for is do the proposed changes or the budget neutrality requirements for Medicare actually start to infringe on the access that patients have to orthopedic services, because that's where we get worried. And that's what we're facing at this point, is that there are some conflicting legislation that's going on. There's a requirement of keeping budget neutrality, and then there, Medicare is trying to balance that with keeping services open. And so what we're facing now is a pretty significant adjustment to the physician payment structure. It was kicked down the road last year with Congress coming through, and we do this every year. We come in and we get them to pass a patch so that a big cut doesn't happen this year. And then right now, if they don't pass a similar change in structure, then we're going to lose a fair amount of funding for these Medicare services over the course of the year. You talked about the importance of us commenting to CMS about this. CMS is really the epitome of the bureaucracy within the federal government. Does it really matter whether Shirasi and her team comes up with these letters to CMS? Are we making any difference? Do they really read any of that? Or what do you think? Doug, I love that you said it that way. I really believe in fundamental change and health transformation. That's what I work hard on. And so it's very easy for me to say, this is a bunch of noise. There's nothing we can do. Why would we ever work in this? And that is absolutely not the case. The AOS has developed such a good relationship with CMMI and CMS that they come to us and say, look, we're trying to figure out how specialty payment is going to go forward. We have experts like you mentioned earlier, Dr. Kevin Bozick and Dr. Doug Lundy, and they come and really work with us. So the advocacy really matters in this area. And the other thing is that I know you've heard it said before, but if you are not at the table, you're on the menu. And that is absolutely true. If we're not there advocating for our patients and our fellowship, they will absolutely, you'll look up one day and our ability to deliver services will be dramatically altered. So I have come to the point to understand that we really have to do it. And the other reason it's important is that we all know the insurers really peg their approaches to what Medicare does. And the commercial side, which right now drives a lot of the ability to create margin on the business that you do, is pegged to the way that Medicare behaves. And so if we can influence that, if we can get it going in a direction, and I believe in the value-based care direction in a way that makes sense, then we're actually going to be successful, hopefully over the next decade, getting other insurers to start looking at it that way as well. That's a really good description of that. Let's start off with the inpatient prospective payment system. So when we talk about that, can you tell us what exactly is the hospital inpatient prospective payment system that we send out in our AOS communication, expecting everybody to know what that is? Can you explain to the fellowship what that actually means? Wow, Doug, I'm not sure if anyone can. Basically, I would look at it as that this is the way inpatient services are paid for. 
in the old days, the majority of orthopedic surgeries were happening on the inpatient side. And we've seen that dramatic shift to the outpatient side for a whole variety of reasons. But this is the hospital and inpatient side. And it's a way that Medicare can, for the most part, tell hospitals what to do in terms of what's required. And it's an interesting segue from what you said earlier. Do we have any influence? The biggest change on the hospital inpatient system coming forward is actually a requirement for using some patient reported outcome measures, or at least recording them. And so that is in response to things that ourselves and other specialties and primary care have been saying is that we want to start being measured more on the services that we're providing for patients and their perspective at the patient level, rather than purely using safety measures as our surrogate for quality. We want to start being able to measure ourselves on the way we change people's pain and function and trying to get patients more involved in measuring the value of the care that we provide. So this is an early step in that direction. It's going to happen at government pace and regulatory pace, as you would expect. And so there's a voluntary period where hospitals are going to be required to start building the infrastructure to measure patient-reported outcome measures around just a couple procedures. Like everything else, it starts with arthroplasty. Sometimes that's the simplest way to get things implemented. And then over the course of a few years, it's going to become mandatory if you want to be paid for inpatient services for Medicare that you're reporting back on these. They're starting with, I think, some reasonable measures. It's probably the ones that we would have chosen if we were given the opportunity and probably because we mostly did. The knee osteoarthritis outcomes, a score, the joint replacement addition, similar on the knee side, and then a general health measure. That is a very clear and comprehensive description of the changes in that. So specifically, you're talking about a hospital-level risk-standardized patient report outcomes performance measure following elective primary total hip and or total knee arthroplasty. And for those policy wonks out there, that's NQF 3559. And that's what you're talking about in terms of that performance measure that actually pulls in real patient reported outcomes rather than the, I think you said the word safety measures that did you brush your teeth and comb your hair today kind of measures that we all were wondering whether these really a surrogate of quality or are we really just checking boxes? Exactly. And I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity to talk about this for a second, Doug, because it's really important to me. I'm passionate about this work. We do not have it all figured out with patient-reported outcome measures, but we want to change that conversation that we're having with payers, Medicare, and others. I use the airport analogy a lot. Patient safety measures are crucially important, but it's the floor. Where did the airplane take off and land, and is everybody still alive? That's important. But that's the base, right? We're not talking at all about what kind of care are you delivering? Are you actually addressing the problem that the patient came in to see you for? And so that's where getting patient-reported outcome measures into this conversation is important. This can be very scary for surgery. I use patient-reported outcome measures on all my patients every day. It is not perfect. There are some patients for whom they're doing great with their knee and they report a low knee score. And you say, why is that? But that's not usually the case, right? It allows us to start looking at it from their perspective. And also, I want to try to reassure surgeons and make sure that we're all using the same language. What we want to be measured on is whether or not we are using patient-reported outcome measures to improve our own practices and whether we are getting better. We are not trying to say surgeon A is better than surgeon B because their scores are different. The truth is, it is nowhere near that level of fidelity. And then it's most likely surgeon A's got more well-adjusted patients than surgeon B or surgeon A's doing easier surgery than surgeon B. So that is not at all what it's to be used for. But the idea that you can continue to practice not measuring your outcomes from the patient's perspective is what we're trying to change. And so when you said earlier that we actually had input into CMS to develop this, how much input do we have into actually the formation of this performance The way the government works, they don't come and say, hey, let me get your comments on the specifics. But 
They even commented on this rule that a variety of stakeholders have suggested to them that this is something that we need to do. And so that's a nod to the fact that this is influence coming from the outside in. As I said, this is basically how we would have drawn it up. And so that's a pretty good indicator that it's the right way to go. You want to have some sense of the patient's general health score. And if you really want to get into specifics, using something like the Promise or the VR12, there's a mental component and a physical component. So that gives us some ability to risk adjust how much a patient's mental health might be affecting their eventual scores. So it's a good thing to have a general health questionnaire, at least as a baseline, and then to try to use a measure of knee function or a measure of hip function, or in this particular case, to look at how you're affecting the patient's quality of life. So it's got implications. And as my colleague, I work with David Ring every week, as many of you know, and he would tell us that we have to evolve these measures into something much more useful over the next 20 years. And we're working on that all the time, and it's gotten a lot better. But it's great to see that they're embracing this part of the conversation in the patient's perspective. It really is. And so to sum up the inpatient prospective payment system that we're talking about, of course, one of the big things that's coming in is this new methodology of how we can actually engage with the macro law in terms of using performance measures. And these are performance measures that will actually matter to patients and to surgeons rather than some of the things that were in previous iterations. Is that a pretty good summary? Yes. And I guess, and this is just my particular opinion, but this is a good time for surgeons to work with the hospitals. They have no idea how to do this. They don't even know what Medicare is talking about. So it's our time to come in and help them understand that we are the experts on advocating for our patients. I would strongly advocate that we're reporting that data out to the AJRR or other things where we can learn as a nation, different approaches with implants and that kind of thing. So lots and lots of opportunity here. And so I would strongly advocate that we take advantage of this regulatory change to to improve care for our patients. All right. Next on our agenda is the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule which is a mouthful in and of itself as well. And the two big things, of course, with this is the conversion factor and, of course, these changes with the E&M codes within the global payments that we would get after surgery. So to start this off, can you, before we talk about the legislation that we were dealing with last week at NOLC, explain to folks what's the whole deal with the conversion factor, why is it important, and how does that affect what we get paid from Medicare? You told me before we started this conversation not to get people bored to sleep, so I'm going to try to avoid the deep details. But the bottom line is that there is a factor that Medicare uses. It is the, I would say, the key log. They set that rate, and then it affects everybody spiraling out from there in terms of the fee schedule. So that conversion factor is really important from that standpoint. And it's also the way that you could argue that it keeps it fair. If they adjust the conversion factor, then it affects everybody across different specialties and across care. And so I'm not sure that's necessarily right, but it probably prevents some of the infighting between different specialties and stuff. But the bottom line is it also allows us as organized medicine from all standpoints to say we are all against this. We do not want you to adjust down the conversion factor, which affects everybody. And we talked a lot about this at NOLC, but we're really going backwards in terms of physician payment and in relation to inflation. Outpatient services and inpatient services from a facility standpoint are pretty well tagged to some kind of a inflationary measure so that there's some growth and increase over time. And for physicians, it's really flat. And if you put that against inflation, then we're losing. The people who are doing, I wouldn't say all of the work, but the majority of the work in trying to care for patients or leading the teams that are caring for patients, we continue to get the short end on that. Sorry for the philosophizing, but to try to understand why it's important. So we have advocated a lot From the healthcare systems committee, we're trying to look at it from two different ways. So we have this 
problem every year where Medicare is going to adjust down the conversion factor to try to maintain budget neutrality, which they are legislatively mandated to do. And we've got to stop that patch every year because the massive cuts could really hurt patient access to care and make it very difficult for a lot of physician practices to stay open. So there's that emergency thing that happens every year. And then there's this balance between do we try to get them to fix that more permanently or do we actually start making that adjustment towards a different payment model, which is going to make more sense? And so we're driving both. So we are trying to drive the conversation. And I know, Doug, you helped us a lot with a proposal that's going to go to the Medicare innovation arm to say we need to come up with condition-based payments, something that makes more sense from a global perspective and really shifts the conversation towards value-based care. But in the meantime, we have got to pay attention to this because we need time of stable Medicare payments so that we can continue to take advantage of the systems that have been adjusted, improved by procedure-based bundles to get us to a place where we can do something in more in condition-based payments. That's probably a long answer for what you were asking, but the bottom line is that we're asking them for, get us a five year of not having to come back here every year and argue about this and stabilize the system for a period of time in terms of physician payment so that we can all make an adjustment towards something more permanent. Yeah, that's a good summary. If you recall, we were not supposed to be back to this quote-unquote SGR problem. For those of y'all that remember the sustainable growth rate, this was supposed to go away and never be dealt with again. And here we are doing Groundhog Day all over again. So HR 8800-8800 has been dropped in the House of Representatives and is the proposed 4.42% fix to the conversion factor reduction. But you brought up a interesting comment as well that we advocated for at NOLC is that there has not been any inflationary updates to Medicare payments for physicians, right? No. And it's really, I guess you could argue that there's the opportunity for that with the way the rate structure is set up, but that is the budget neutrality requirements really make it difficult for them to ever implement something that makes sense to that. And so we started planting the seed with legislatures at NOLC. And by the way, I want to applaud all of the surgeons who took the time to come to Washington to advocate on behalf of our profession. A lot of people put in time and effort. The OGR really prepared us well, and we were able to go to our different legislators from different states and point out some of these problems. But we're really advocating that we need to tag something towards inflation. It just doesn't make sense. That's a constant sort of Damocles hanging over our head. We're sort of arguing for payments to stay flat. And next to inflation, that's killing us. And so we need to be arguing to be pegged to some kind of an inflationary measure the way that outpatient centers and hospitals are. We were just planting that seed. I don't think they've been thinking of it that way, but that might be a good way to buy us that time we need for the next, and God, I hate to say it's a decade away, the next five to 10 years to really get substantial value-based payment reform through Congress and actually implemented. The next thing I want to tiptoe into, and it gets real confusing real fast. So if you can help the listeners understand what is the whole deal with the ENM codes in the global period. Now, I've been to countless coding courses. There are no ENM codes in the global period. So if there are and we're getting cut by something, what is that all about? How does that whole thing matter? I would say this is extremely confusing and it gets confusing very quickly. As best as I can summarize it, I think CMS is trying to find a way to help primary care providers appropriately code the services that they're providing, the time that they're spending with really complex patients. And so their way to do that has been to make adjustments on the EM codes. It's what exists there and then create an extra code for complexity that they can tag so that they get reimbursed for the services that they provide. And there's a real struggle on the primary care front. I'm an orthopedic surgeon 
through and through, but a lot of our colleagues are working very hard and it is very hard for them to keep their practices open. The rates of primary care reimburses. So I see both sides of that, but they're actually proposing things that are legislatively prohibited in terms of adjusting the global E&M codes are not seeing the same kinds of adjustments. All right, Carl, once again, thank you for summarizing these incredibly complex topics. But just to sum up the Medicare fee physician schedule, there's two parts in that we were talking about. First, and this is going to be a call to action later on, y'all. So HR 8800 has been dropped in the House, and that's giving us a 4.42% update to the conversion factor. So protecting what we get paid from Medicare. And then the second part of it, in terms of the global payment rule, is that in the proposed rule, CMS points to the method of valuation for a rational of why some bundled services should be increased in value to reflect the revised office and outpatient E&M values, while the global codes don't. The problem is the statutory prohibition pays physicians differently for the same work. And so that's technically a no-no on their part. So that's what we're pushing there. And it's a very confusing topic. And I apologize to the listeners, but we're doing the best we can to make these incredibly complex subjects relevant because y'all need to know what the issues are because it's relevant to what we do. So let's finish up on the outpatient prospective payment system. And I think the big thing with this, Carl, is the whole idea of the IPO, the inpatient only list. And I know as a total joint surgeon, y'all are among the first to get total knees, total hips off the IPO. There's talk about shoulder arthroplasty coming off. And now we've got these codes with CPT code 22632, which is a spine arthrodesis code that would be coming off. What's your thoughts on the IPO? How does that affect us? And what should we be thinking in terms of taking procedures off of the inpatient only list and allowing these to be done as an outpatient? Absolutely. And thanks, Doug. This is an interesting one. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, were we going to be going back and forth about the IPO list a lot? I would not have predicted that, but it's really become a tool to start adjusting the way we do care. And I think everyone's got their opinion on how we did with procedure-based bundles in the arthroplasty world. I know I hear a lot of talk about a race to the bottom. We're going to get them less and less expensive and the ability to make margins on those is going to be more difficult. A lot of that's true and a lot of it's not. I'd say in some ways we got a lot more organized. We learned a lot about the post-acute care portion of delivering hip and knee arthroplasty and what's really necessary and what's really not. And I guess we're headed in a positive direction in terms of bringing the cost of these really important procedures down. At the same token, the payment has to cover more than cost of services or it doesn't make any sense. And so we're trending down in that way. So in general, I think whether or not we agree with it, I think it's clear that we can perform some of these more complex orthopedic services in an outpatient setting. The most critical rule that's coming up now is moving an extra level of spine arthrodesis code out to that side. And so it's clear that single level procedures can be performed in an outpatient setting. And this gives the physician the ability to actually bill and be paid for if they do an additional level, which I think our spine colleagues, at least the ones I've spoken to, feel that this is reasonable. The overall trend is an interesting one. I think the most important thing that we're advocating for from the AOS perspective is that giving us options is one thing, but making sure that the physicians and the patients together are making the final decision on this side of service is really important. And this is an important part of my day-to-day practice in the delivery of arthroplasty. There are some patients who can have the right family support, the right preparation and everything else to be able to do these procedures as an outpatient. They're medically well enough, and some of them are not. And so you really cannot take that decision-making away. I think it can be done algorithmically. I think it can be done from a multidisciplinary standpoint, but making sure that 
You're giving options to the patient and the system to pick the right side of care and delivering less expensive side of care when that's the appropriate thing to do for the patient, but not restricting access to the appropriate side of care when the patient really needs it. I think we're figuring this out. I haven't seen it in my own personal practice that it's really prohibitive, except for a few things that can happen when pre-op clinics and stuff get into a routine of saying, oh, it's a primary joint replacement. They're approved for outpatient. And we're like, whoa, we've got in-stage renal disease and, and other reasons that this needs to be performed as an inpatient. So the documentation part is important. But I think in the early stage, if as long as the regulators aren't getting into a position where they're mandating that procedures be performed in a certain way, and as long as they continue to provide the appropriate funding for to cover that side of care, I think we're heading in a, I would say it's a sort of a neutral direction. It's giving options without necessarily taking away options from patients. An important thing you said in that was that we maintain either control or a large portion of control of the site of service that the patient's going to receive the procedure, right? I think we have to. We really are the only ones who understand well enough the needs of our patients and the medical aspects of it. I'll quote my partner, Kevin Bozik, is often to say that when I have a decision to make with a patient, my job is to give them enough of the information of what it takes to be an orthopedic surgeon so that they can understand things, understand enough about them and their preferences and values from my standpoint so that we can make a decision together. And I think this is one of those areas where we need to inform them enough and help make a decision together about what's best to do. But we've got to have the options. And at the end of the day, the physician has got to be the one that says, look, you have too many obstacles for a successful outpatient procedure. We've got to do this in the hospital. Or I know you may prefer to go to the hospital, like you could do it pretty safely. So we have to guide that decision because there's really no way that a patient is going to be able to do that on their own. And they really rely on us. That's our job. So we just have to make sure that the regulators don't get in the way of the physician making that final decision. Carl, when we talk about procedures that are coming off the inpatient only list, like this spinal arthrodesis procedure that we're proposing, how does the AAOS decide or support what is good to come off the IPO and what's not? It's a great question. And so luckily, we have such a broad group of experts and the AOS is such an organized body that we can quickly get into comments. One of our jobs on the healthcare systems committee is try to maintain expertise across subspecialties. And we try to look at them one at a time and make sure that we're appropriately getting input from physicians. We are in agreement with this. I think it's a reasonable thing. It puts options in the hands of our spine surgeons. It doesn't require them to do something that they don't feel is appropriate. But if they're just expanding the level of fusion and can be safely done in an outpatient setting, they're still able to make that decision. I think this is very reasonable to support. And we've checked it out with our spine experts who are in agreement with that. So I think y'all can clearly understand the absolute complexity and appreciate the tremendous work of the Healthcare Systems Committee. We talked about the inpatient prospective payment system, the outpatient prospective payment system, and then, of course, the Medicare fee schedule and the incredible complexity that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uses to pay us and other physicians for what we do. So make sure that you follow AAOS Advocacy for updates on the final rules and how these policies for 2023 will impact your practice. There will be more opportunities to advocate, particularly surrounding the conversion factor as Congress works to prevent these cuts and overhaul the Medicare payment system. And you can find this information in the AOS Advocacy Action Center under Payment Policy Changes. Carl, thank you very much for being with us. Appreciate all that you do for the Academy and for explaining these complex issues. Thank you so much, Doug. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. 
For more information on this topic and other AOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the bone beat advocacy. Mm-hmm.